Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on live television here in Utah or Idaho or any parts uh, thereabout, you can go to www.hotm.tv, click on live streaming video and watch it live from anywhere in the world. Have you gotten off your couches and come to our weekly Bible study yet? I didn't think so. For all you chickens out there, we want to show you what it looks like here at our Bible study. So let's take a look. Wait a minute, that was when my home teacher was visiting. Wrong clip. Uh, let's go to the real Bible study. Hey, be your Hey, be your Like the sign says, join us every Sunday afternoon, 2.30 to 3.30. You can go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information like directions, etc. While you're driving to the study, tune into AM820, The Truth, uh, from 1 to 2 p.m. on Sunday afternoons. You can hear replays of Heart of the Matter. AM820 is a great Christian radio station here in Salt Lake City and uh, plays some excellent information, including Heart of the Matter on Sundays from 1 to 2. All right, join us this Saturday, this coming Saturday, 7 p.m. at the Refuge Church in Ogden, as I've been invited to speak, and I'm going to give a rip-roaring preaching speech that night. Christian Heritage High School, 5101 South, 1050 West in Riverdale, Utah. You can go to refugeutah.org, and we'll look forward to seeing you all out there this Saturday night. Shield of Faith. 
is a support website for police officers run by Christian police officers here in Utah. Check it out, Ossifers, if you go to www.sofut.net. And uh, we hope you uh, will check that out if you're in uh, law enforcement. And if you are in other professions in the, in the state and you're a Christian, start up your own site. The nurses, school teachers, whatever it is, and do the same thing that these policemen have done for people in their profession because you can relate with each other and it's a good way to fellowship and friendship one uh, to another. Also, just to let you know, at the Bible study uh, this coming Sunday afterward, from 3.30 to 4.30, uh, we are going to be gathering together with uh, people who are coming out of Mormonism. And um, it's, uh, the group is called You're Not Alone. And you don't need to come to the Bible study if you don't want. If you want to, you're welcome. And you just come and talk with other people who are coming out. There's a lot of them who have come out from Mormonism and you can share experiences. You're not alone every Sunday after the Bible study from 3.30 till whenever, usually about probably 4.30. Okay, uh, if you're looking for someone to help you or mentor you through leaving the LDS Church, write us, tell us where you live, and we'll, make a, make you, uh, we'll connect you up through the email with a person in your area, we hope. We just connected up uh, people who lived in Switzerland, of all places. So email us at sean at aletheamedia.com. We'll put you in contact. Or if you want to be a representative uh, of Aletheia uh, Ministries out there in the world, let us know. It takes a little time, so don't be impatient with us. We'll get it all together. Okay, how about a moment from the Word? Working our way through Matthew, we're at Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, which says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, thou art the Messiah the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, there is a ton of information in that. I'm just going to cover one aspect of it right now. Uh, there are three main interpretations of what Christ was saying to Peter at this time. The Catholics take, the Roman Catholics take this position that Jesus was telling Peter, whose name Jesus gave him, Petros, it means little rock, that upon him he would build his church, upon Peter, and he would be the first pope. From this, the Roman Catholic Church is able to show a line of papal authority stretching all the way back to Peter, Okay. The LDS Church, to some extent, agrees with the Catholic premise that Jesus established his church on Peter. They say he would be the first prophet. But that the Catholic Church and others quickly made a mess of things, which the LDS say was a universal apostasy. And therefore, in 1820, Joseph Smith, a 14-year-old boy, restored the lost priesthood that Peter had and uh, back to the earth and then restored uh, Jesus' church. This being said, the LDS also use uh, these very passages as proof texts to, uh, for claims of modern revelation. Uh, 
uh, when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am to Peter? And Peter reply uh, came, not from men, but from uh, the Father which is in heaven. The LDS say that this is indicative of that Jesus is going to build his church not only on authority, but he's also going to build it on revelation. Upon this, the LDS say, this being uh, revelation. Upon this, revelation, okay? The final general interpretation of these passages is the Protestant view, which I believe is absolutely the correct view, which states that when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am, or who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God, that Jesus was saying it was this testimony. Thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. That it is upon this testimony, this rock, that his church would be built. Christians get support for this fact that in the Old Testament and in the New, Jesus is known as the rock with a capital R. And uh, while Peter is known as a little pebble or a lowercase r. Now, this doesn't mean Christians uh, throw Peter out, not at all. He was certainly the apostle which opened, had the keys to open up the gospel there at Pentecost. He preached to the, the Jews there. Then he went to Cornelius and he preached the gospel first to the Gentiles. He was the one opening the doors for the gospel to come forward. So they don't throw uh, Peter out. They just say he started it up. And then now with a foundation of prophets, Old Testament, and John the Baptist, apostles, the 12 in the New Testament, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, Jesus builds his church made up of believers. We make up the building, and that's how they see it. If we were to take all three of these interpretations, Matthew 16, the Catholic, the LDS, the classic Protestant, and set them side by side, they almost have equal arguments on those, that single passage discussion alone. Almost equal arguments, okay? So somewhere in that mix comes the full truth of what it means entirely. Yes, we do govern the church by revelation. Yes, uh, the church was founded upon uh, an authoritative church. So that's why we have pastors and things. There's a, somewhere in there is the truth. And it's the only thing in, in our discussion of Matthew that I have to say there's arguments on all sides. I got to be fair. But when we look at most of the other things we've talked about in Matthew, the LDS view just doesn't, uh, this doesn't stand up at all. Okay, our ability to stay in the public eye is directly tied to this, your support of the ministry. We hope you'll prayerfully consider the following.
Hey, that last shot that you saw, that is a uh, stock photo that is free to use. And I guess there's a, there's a billboard in the state somewhere of Carol Camping using that stock photo on the billboard to say that the end is coming in May. And people are thinking that it's me. Somehow people are calling and they're saying, is that Sean teaming up with Harold Camping saying that the end of the world is coming in May? No! I have nothing to do with that. It's just a stock photo that Camping used and that we use here on the spot. Hope that helps. Let's look at some emails. Jeremy wrote, I wanted to send you a quick note. I'm 23 and live in Utah. I'm a convert to the church originally from New Jersey where I was raised Protestant in a Pentecostal tradition. He says, look, Mormonism is good. Does it really matter if the church is true or not? Mormonism is good, exclamation point. I love the sense of belonging and the ritual. I love going to the temple and all my friends at my ward. I love studying about church history in the general and attending general conference. I love being a part of Mormon culture. I'm not blind. I know the Book of Mormon is nothing more than Bible fiction. Uh, I know that the LDS church is acting more like real estate holding company than a religion. I know Joseph Smith and his treasure hunter days. And I know about Kolob. We actually sunk hymns at my baptism, including praise to the man about Kolob. None of that really matters to me because I believe Mormonism is good, even if it isn't necessarily true. I remember my father-in-law, he's now deceased, saying, even if the church isn't true, it's the best damn church on the face of the earth. Uh, you know, this attitude, I'm sure, permeates people's minds and hearts who are LDS because they don't have a relationship with Christ. They haven't been born again. Because when you're born again, you say, I'll go to the death for Christ and the truth he offers, and I will not embrace a counterfeit whatsoever. So my heart goes out to Jeremy and his, uh, his thing. I hope that he will examine his heart and realize that this life is short and he will stand before his maker and he will, uh, he will say what he followed and why. And because it was fun and he enjoyed it, isn't going to hold very much water. Keese writes, I was watching Channel 20 television in Salt Lake City on March 15th and saw your program for the first time. The particular episode showed an older interview with Sean McCraney, followed by a call from a man named Ray. During that call, Ray repeatedly asked him to present with him facts. I enjoy this, Sean's points, some of the things I find uncomfortable, but it brings me to a question. How far do you let your fact-finding take you? The main question in my mind is why stop at investigating just the LDS church? It seems like there are interesting facts regarding all aspects of faith and religion, including Jesus and the Bible itself. Why stop in your search? Uh, I want you to know, Keith, I didn't stop in my search. In my search, I, I went from Mormonism, then I went into uh, many religious faiths. I studied, I went to Bible study. I look at the Bible with a, a, a critical eye. When we teach it, I'll say, this, this doesn't make sense to me if it doesn't make sense, and if I can't, something that makes You know, there's no problem with inquiry, and I believe in inquiry, and, and, and for 17 years, examine my faith. See, this is the beauty of Christianity, Keys. There are historical, scientific, geological, genealogical, linguistic, actual evidences to the faith. To say that, to go through Mormonism and examine it, and then liken that to going through Christianity and examining it, are not even in the same world in, by comparison, okay? 
uh, it would be like believing in a place called the North Pole versus believing in a place called France, okay? There is a France, and people have been there, and they, you get back souvenirs from it, and there's pictures of it, but, but oh, there is a North Pole too. Uh, I mean, where Santa Claus lives, where Santa Claus lives. There's just no comparison between the, the two. So that, I, I have sought and I don't believe in stopping with Christianity. I believe everything should be investigated. Uh, and with that email uh, concluding, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, need you so much tonight. We're going to embark upon our study, arduous study of the Book of Mormon. And we pray your spirit will be uh, with me and with our audience, people seeking for truth, and that you will open our eyes to uh, the fallacies that are presented and we will embrace them seriously and not just sit back and say, oh, it's all okay, it doesn't really matter, Lord. Let us have a relationship with you. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. The difference between those who possess good faith, which means it leads to salvation and a relationship with the living God, and those who operate by bad faith, which leads to delusion and bondage, is those who possess good faith also have a complete dedication, no matter what the cost, to knowing truth with a capital T. Truth is not relative. Truth is truth, and to possess it, a person must be willing to embrace it no matter what the cost is. Epistemology is a big Greek word that describes a study of how we know things. It's just called epistemology. How we know something to be true or right or correct is one area of epistemology. Our university system is built upon the foundation that truth can be discovered and even uh, discovered through investigation and through education and uh, through the scientific method. From antibiotics to uh, space engineering to the cleaning products we use or the hair dye, we test, we examine theories and postulations in order to see if they're true or sound and correct. Faith and trust in a product or in a medicine, even if it's just a tile cleaner, is based on evidences, not abstractions, not fantasies, and not myths. History has proven that where formal and or informal education is lacking and a refusal exists to employ sound epistemological study, dangerous myths arise and they can flourish and they threaten people's freedom. They uh, threaten their liberties. At times they can even threaten their very lives. Without valid evidences, informed decision-making, and a willingness to throw out the absurd and replace it with the actual, humankind has forever been victimized by placing their trust in an endless list of charlatans who kind of lurk beneath the surface of um, pseudosciences and financial scams and political depredations, and worst of all, in religious frauds. Adolf Hitler, as quoted by Joaquin Fest, once said, quote, What good fortune for those in power that people do not think. What good fortune for those in power that people 
do not think. Now, our grand creator designed human beings with an ability to reason and ruminate on information so as to make sound decisions on where to place our faith on sound, reasonable data. Contrary to popular opinion, God did not place us in a world void of evidence, nor does he expect us to receive him and his commands without it. You'll notice that the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky and land on some golden altar. It didn't just come to us that way, right? Uh, instead, it was delivered processionally and uh, in real time by real people living, recited in real living history. No, our living God, for what I'm sure are innumerable reasons, supports and undergirds the faith he wants us to possess by providing it from things with material content and uh, from the world in which we, we reside. Even the source of our salvation, Jesus Christ, once invisible, once uh, God in, without a body, came to this earth and became material and took on a body of flesh and blood so that he could be touched and felt and seen and resurrected and talked to and learned. God works through the evidentiary material in which us humans live. When it comes to his authentic written instructions for man, the Bible, he produced it over the course of many real centuries at the hands of many writers and in real politically charged histories. And though the Bible has been challenged and threatened with its very survival throughout the ages, it's been sequestered, it's been gathered and burned, it's been ridiculed, it has proven itself wholly reliable and consistent. One of the writers of the book, the prophet Isaiah, wrote by inspiration, Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail, talking about the passages. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. Uh, Luke commended the men from Berea in his time, who didn't just take the apostles' word for the things that they said, nor trusted in their feelings to see if they were true, but instead he wrote, these men of Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. In when Jesus told the story, the parable or story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is in hell and he looks up and he sees Abraham and he says, hey, Abraham, can I go back to earth and warn my brothers about this place? And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. How could those brothers alive up on earth hear Moses and the prophets who had been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years when Jesus told the story? They would hear him by reading his word. The apostle wrote in Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Okay, so with so much importance put on the word of God by God himself, we can assume a couple things. First, we can assume that there will be a continual and constant attack on its authenticity, on its trustworthiness, on its ability as an ancient book to address modern problems that people have. Secondly, we can expect that there will be counterfeits to God's book. 
books that seek to replace God's word, that seek to add to his actual word or take away from his literal word. Consider the Baha'i faith. They look at the Kitab-i Akdas. That's a book they say is inspired and comes from God. Depending on the type of Buddhism that's embraced, there are dozens of books that they uh, consider to be inspired. Chiodoism uh, uh, holds up a book called the Dong Hak, and it's called Scripture for them. Gnosticism has the Nag Hammadi and other Gnostic texts. Mormonism, of course, has the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and anything their prophets say are Scripture. Uh, Confucianism has the five classics, the 13 classics, and the four books. Discordianism has the Principia Discordia. The Druids have the Rasa Il Akmaha, and New Agers have the Course in Miracles, and or, if they don't like that, the Urantia. The bottom line, we could go on for five or so minutes and list the books that the Hindus, they got a ton of them, the Janus, the Manichaeus, the Rastafarians, the Sikhs, hold up as inspired uh, scripture equal to the Bible. They cannot all be right. And if the Bible is true, they are all deceptions, okay? So what are we supposed to do? How can we tell what to trust? What do we do with this? The solution to the quandary can be found in the process by which God provided his holy word to the world. The solution is found in the process by which God provided his holy word to the world. World By speaking through real people and uh, from real places over vast periods of real historical time, we discover that God protects human beings from being taken by the frauds of this world. From the Christian perspective, anytime someone is seeking for truth, they have to ask themselves a couple questions about the book they're reading. First, is the book in question an authentic ancient book? They have to ask that. Well, wait a minute, you might say. What if it doesn't even claim to be an authentic ancient book? Then I would say be very careful of it. You see, God uses history and time as a safeguard to bring his word to us rather than giving us one revelation in a single moment that's down in front of us through one man. See, God works through time and through history and through us to bring his word to us finally where other charlatans come up with one revelation in a single sitting or whatever it takes and bring it to us in one fell swoop. So the first question is the book in question, an authentic ancient book. Secondly, seekers of truth ought to ask who physically recorded the book? Was it one man, two men, five men and women, six, ten of the original authors? Well, what does that matter, you might ask? It matters because this is another measure God employs as a fail-safe to safeguard believers from falsehoods. Anyone can claim to receive a revelation, okay? God safeguards his truth with many contributors. Within the Hebrew custom, many witnesses were required. God has given us many, many, many witnesses uh, to uh, bring us his book. And finally, we have to ask, is the book... Uh, the book of the word of God. 
If we look at the Bible and ask these questions, the answers would look something like this. Is the book in question an authentic ancient book? Yes, manuscript evidence, cultures, geology, and a host of other factors support this completely. How, then we ask how many authors contributed to the book? We know at least of 40, it was not one man claiming revelations uh, from a single source, nor was it one man claiming to translate all the sacred writings of others into one book. It's a book written by God through dozens and dozens and dozens of people who did not know each other in a historical reality and compiled into a sacred collection by people who came from all sorts of diverse backgrounds and histories and agreed upon the contents, including uh, people who helped uh, construct it. Finally, we would ask, is the Bible the book of God? Um, we would reply, it claims to be. Now I say that because Christians are not asked to believe the Bible blindly. We are told by God through his word, study it out, to reason with him, to show themselves approved through study and to search unafraid of what we might find. Christians are to examine the book's proofs, especially in areas of prophetic fulfillment, continuity between the books and its historicity. Listen, by this standard, by the standard, Christians ought to also examine every other book that comes their way. The cults and the cons, the false prophets, the liars are always claiming that they receive the revelation, the secret manuscript, or the superlative insights on what God wants. Mary Baker Eddy, Ellen G. White, Charles Taz Russell, Joseph Smith Jr., David Koresh, Muhammad, Christopher Namelka, Jim Jones, all of them, all alone, claim to be the sole oracle of God. Not so with his revealed word. Now, those other books of supposed scripture that we just recited to you are often known for promoting goodness, sound living, and even godly bromides on how to love and how to be like Christ, okay? Many people ask, what's the harm? Like the emailer earlier, if the book teaches good things, whether it's from God or not, does it even matter? In the book of 2 Peter 2.19, it says something very interesting about this. Peter was writing about beguiling people and says, quote, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Listen, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. What does it mean? It means that whatever influences you, to that you become a slave. Okay, if you read a book by Svengali Jojo Mama and you embrace it, you become a prisoner to the mind, heart, and thoughts of Svengali Jojo Mama. Okay, so with these, so it is with these false books of scripture. When you are overcome by one of them, or you you uh, devote yourself to one of them, or you're committed to one of them, you become captive to its author. Okay. If the Bible is authored by God, and it is, when you embrace it fully, you become a captive or prisoner to him. And the beautiful thing about that is he's infallible and he won't let you down where all the rest of them lead you like a lamb to the slaughter. Romans 6.16 echoes the same sentiment saying, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. 
So it gives you the same principle. I'll tell you right now, you look around Utah, the devout Mormons, you want to see the mind and heart of Joseph Smith? You look at the top and you look at the bottom and everything in between of Mormonism. That is his dream. That is what he and people are under his power and they become servants to him and his dream because they've embraced what he said. But when you embrace the Bible, you become a slave and bondservant to the author of it, Christ. Okay. Finally, we also would ask the, uh, if the work wholly supports the Bible itself. Is it an authentic book of scripture? Was it written by one man or translated by one man or uh, written by many men? Is it the word of God? Does it challenge anything from God's already proven word? In the history of the church, 4461, Joseph Smith Jr. said this about the Book of Mormon. I told the brethren that the Book of Mormon was the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. Is this true? If it's true, why is it true? Anyone concerned with knowing truth with a capital T would do all in their power to examine this book with as much scrutiny as they could find. The proof of the Book of Mormon being God's word is not in feelings, or desires to belong to a group or to want it to be true. The truthfulness of the Book of Mormon lies in its facts behind the book's creation, behind the book's historicity, and behind uh, what the book contains and how it contains it. This is how we discover truths of the Bible. The Book of Mormon should not be held up to any different type of scrutiny. Now, a couple important points and we'll go to the phones. To successfully book, uh, prove that a book is true with a capital T, the book must be true with a capital T. Certainly there can be some difficulties, that's okay, but the book will stand up to scrutiny. It won't fall over to a litany of scrutinies. Sure, there could be, like I said, a couple problems because we haven't discovered maybe those, but it's not gonna fail with every single uh, litmus test that says, is it authentic? Okay, you gotta, you gotta see, the Bible, it stands up to boom after boom after boom, centuries of hits. It keeps standing up and proving itself true. But yet, the Book of Mormon has yet to stand up to anything yet, and yet it's still held out as true. Secondly, and I've said this before, it's impossible to prove something that's false. You cannot prove a negative. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, everybody in our high school believed that a family of short, green gremlins lived on a hill near our house. On Saturday nights and Friday nights, all the teens would go up to see the gremlin family, okay? And there were people who said they heard the gremlins laugh. And there were people who said they had a, caught a piece of the gremlins clothes. And so there were people who said they exist. There were people who said they did not exist. But anytime someone said it's not true, someone else would say it is true. How do you prove it wrong? People could walk up and say, I looked through the whole hill. And the, and the other people who believed it would say, well, they weren't home then. It's impossible. It's like, it's like standing before the Rocky Mountains and saying, in these mountains is a cave full of bars of gold. It's impossible to prove that. And so it just goes on as a myth. It goes on as a legend. God doesn't work that way. His Bible is provable. He gives us all the evidences and that safeguards people seeking for truth from frauds. 
But the fraud will go and believe that the Rocky Mountains contains the cave and spend their life searching for it or trying to prove it true. But you can't, okay? This is why God gives us his word. A year or so ago, apostle of the LDS church, supposed apostle Jeffrey R. Holland uttered these empty, blustering words in defense of the Book of Mormon. He said, quote, for 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart, like perhaps no other book in modern religious history, perhaps like no other book in any religious history, baloney. And he, write, he says, it still stands. On what? Failed theories about its origins have been born and parroted and have died from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged paranoid to cunning genius. None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one Joseph gave as its young, unlearned translator. In this, I stand with my own great-grandfather who said simply enough, quote, no wicked man could write such a book as this, want to bet? And no good man could write it unless it were true and he were commanded of God to do so, end quote, of Holland's grandfather. I testify, he says, that one cannot come to the full faith in this latter-day work and therefore and thereby find the fullest measure of peace and comfort in these our times until he or she embraces the divinity of the Book of Mormon, and he adds, and the Lord Jesus Christ of whom it testifies. He goes on, if anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of a heretofore unknown text teeming with literary and Semitic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of those pages, especially without accounting for their powerful witness of Jesus Christ and the profound spiritual impact that witness has had on what is now tens of millions of readers. If that is the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. And he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. Using a fairly exhaustive method of analysis, we're going to challenge this so-called apostle for the next year or more. And we're going to take each show after we do all the stuff we normally do. We're going to take each show and we're going to go through and systematically, exhaustively dissect this Book of Mormon. And we know that um, it is going to help you see that the thing is a fraud. And it, to us, it's not a, it's in the least, it's a matter of the quality of eternity, if not a matter of life eternal itself. So we're going to open up our phone lines to get our operator sifting through your calls, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. While we wait for a minute, let me explain how the Book of Mormon analysis is going to go. Tonight was our introduction, of course. I'm going to come over here, and we're going to look at this. Let's see how that looks. Uh, excellent. Cultivating a Religious Fraud, our title. So what we're going to do is we're going to... We're going to use the analogy of a farmer. And the farmer's whole objective is to raise a single onion. And we're going to call that onion, when it is properly raised, the Book of Mormon or the Book of Mormonian. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to show you what is necessary, the necessary elements for this farmer to have success. So can we get that picture and this little thing in there, Natalie? Okay, we're going to start first. He needs to find a piece of ground. What that is, it's going to be the early American setting of the Book of Mormon. 
everything that was going around in early America at the time that the Book of Mormon was supposedly uh, uh, discovered, unearthed, and then written. The next one is we need to have a seed for the onion, for the Book of Mormonian. And that seed is going to be the Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith family. That family environs of what that seed was as it was going to be planted. Then we need to have fertilizer. And to fertilize that seed, we have the folk magic practices of Joseph Smith and his family and the 19th century uh, cultural influences that helped him fertilize and get foment and, and nourishment for this book called the Book of Mormonian. And then we're going to have the actual planting. The seed goes in the ground. And the planting is going to be the angel Moroni when he visits. And we're going to look at those visits and what they mean in terms of chronology and how long the process to actually supposedly translate this Book of Mormon occurred. We're going to have the water that is going to be poured on this uh, seed. And it's the translation process, the looking in the hat, the staring off into space, all the things that weren't part of so-called golden plates and the golden plates and the people who were involved in the translation. Then we're going to get to the pesticide. That's things that endangered this seed from going south from not sprouting. What that pesticide is, it's the lost 116 pages. We're gonna explain about how Joseph Smith covered that up within the actual text as a con. Then we're gonna go down and we're gonna talk about the actual harvest of the Book of Mormonian. All right, and that's going to be the witnesses, the supposed witnesses, and we're going to hear about their testimonies, the three and the eight, and we're going to show you how those were not testimonies and how it's, it's uh, purported that they were, but they're not. And we're going to talk about Professor Charles Anton and what he said. We're going to talk about the publishing, and then we're going to take out the Book of Mormonian itself. And once we do that, then we're going to go into the second part of our study, and that is we're going to take this, this giant onion, this Book of Mormonian, and each layer we are going to show you how that thing was constructed and what elements went into that book and what he extracted, whether he had help doing it. All the things that could have possibly and all the things that did certainly come to the construction of the book. And once we finish that, and that's going to be probably about eight or nine months, we are going to take the actual Book of Mormon and we're going to use everything that we've learned in the setup in the onion itself, and we're going to open up the book, and we're going to go chapter by chapter, and we're going to show you all those elements within the Book of Mormon. We're going to show you the borrowing. We're going to show you the, the cultural themes. We're going to show you the borrowing from uh, 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 masonry. We're going to show you things that came about because of his own personal life. And by the time we're done, you're going to see the thing is nothing but an onion that makes people cry when they bear testimony of it. But that rots when, it's a, when it sits around for just a little bit while in the light of day. Okay? So that's what we're going to go with as we study the Book of Mormon. We have Ken from Orem, Utah. We have Todd from South Jordan. And we have Garrett from Honolulu, Hawaii on the phone. We're going to take them right now and uh, finish up tonight. All right. Honolulu. Garrett, you're on Heart of the Matter. What's up? This is awesome. <laughs> How you doing, man? Huh? You're on the air, Garrett. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> um, as you probably know already, I'm from Hawaii, and I'm awesome. I should chat and talk to my friends about you. Shaka brada. Um, my question was, um, actually, I hope you but there's a, a you out here, and there's a huge Mormon temple, um, they're right in the middle of this huge uh, tourist attraction, um, it's very big, and I grew up 
like going to it and actually working at um, give the students who buy a job there. And I was wondering because all my Mormon friends are from the same the same church, that church, and they all have like they buy it. They're not all BYU students. They're all from here. They all have vastly uh, different beliefs in the Mormon like theology or whatever. And I'm not just really sure that how it could happen, especially in Mormonism because they all seem pretty well not very informed, um, pretty united at what they believe. Okay, so Garrett, Garrett, I'm, I'm interrupting you because we have a, it's a tough connection coming all the way from Hawaii. Give me the simple question slowly and clearly. Okay, sorry. Um, how could a church, Mormonism, just one single church, um, how could all the members have vastly different beliefs if they all go to the same church and are talking to the same people? Okay. Uh, are you watching streaming? Do you want to hang up? Or you want me to answer on the air? <laughs> okay, my friend. Thank you for the call. Keep watching. All right. Bye-bye. Mormonism is a very slippery slope, and it has defenses and answers on either side of the fence. And so people are allowed within the confines of Mormonism to almost kind of believe, uh, have different levels of belief on any subject because they believe it's kind of a progress in your thought if you start delving out in the mysteries and believing God was, uh, uh, you know, once suffered on an earth. Like, I mean, there's deeps and there is the simple Mormons and there are the, the structured Mormons and there's the outcast Mormons and so many are not educated and some of them really are and they're all allowed to coexist within the group so long as they do not step out and speak against the church. So you can have people, Garrett, within the Mormon church who believe that Joseph, you can say, do you really believe Joseph Smith was a prophet? And they can say, well, you know, I don't know, but I think the church is a really good thing now. You can ask another one, do you really believe Joseph Smith was a prophet? He absolutely was a prophet. And you could ask another one, do you believe Joseph Smith was a prophet? And they could say, what's a prophet? I mean, it's that varied in the way they allow them to exist so long as you support the institution. Okay, and that's really important to understand, and that's how they operate. Okay, we're going to Todd in South Jordan, Utah. He's a first-time caller. Todd, you're on Heart of the Matter. Todd? Todd? We're going to John in Salt Lake City. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. John? Hello? Yeah, you're on the air. I'm on the air? Yep. Uh, this is John. I know. You need to turn your TV down. You're on the air, John. Okay, I, I turned my TV down. Okay, you're on the air. Okay, uh, Sean? Yeah. Uh, check it out. Um, I, I want to uh, congratulate you. I, I'll tell you that's good that you're um, doing the uh, dissecting the Book of Mormon. That's pretty cool. Also, um, I wanted to mention that uh, I also use the Book of Mormon to witness to the LDS because there's a lot of descriptions of uh, the Trinity in the, in the Book of Mormon, and they always tell me that I'm, uh, uh, what you say, uh, uh, mistranslating it. So I just wanted you to uh, kind of mention, what, what, how, how can we come back and tell them that it's not mistranslated, it's in black and white. Just go ahead and, um, you know, read it yourself. 
You know, John, I would be very careful about uh, using the Book of Mormon to uh, prove them. One, it was modalism that Joseph Smith was teaching in the Book of Mormon and not the Trinitarian doctrines. If they're really examined, you'll see it was uh, modalism, which was a heresy refuted uh, during the uh, early Christian church. So Joseph, he progressed in his theology. He first embraced traditional Christianity, and most of the Book of Mormon supports that. And that's probably what you're using when you reach out to LDS. But to them, it's, not, it's just going to verify, and to them, it's just going to make them feel like we are Christian. Because you're showing, and they don't care about the inconsistencies. I'm telling you right now, very few Mormons care about inconsistencies in doctrine or history. They, they don't care about facts. So to, I would use the Bible and consider the Book of Mormon what it is, a fraud. And because I just think it's, it, it, maybe I'm wrong. The Lord can use anything to reach people, but I think it's a dangerous way to go. And plus, it's tough to understand what Joseph Smith was really teaching from those singular ver verses you might be using. Well, well, if you, if you, okay, now, and I do understand that, and yes, I do believe it's a fraud. The only reason I use it is some, because there is a part of it in the uh, Book of Alma that talks about the, the, the that God is, uh, the eternal God would come down and, and uh, save his people. Yeah, but he says the eternal God, but he refers to him as the Father. Yeah, the eternal Father, that's correct. That's, 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 modal, that's modalism, John. That is not what happened. The Son came, not the Father. Oh, oh no, 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 I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm just saying to them... I'm showing them that because uh, that, that they're saying that it's the sun that came down. I'm telling them, to me, it, it, Jesus is God in the flesh. Yeah. Okay? And the fact that he's God in the flesh, I'm saying that you're saying that the Eternal Father came down, and, and, and the Book of Mormon says the Eternal Father came down and uh, saved his people. They, they don't. They don't uh, if, you go, if, if you go examine LDS apologist's answer to that, they're going to give enough of an answer uh, that is befuddled enough. The LDS will read it and say, ah, it doesn't matter anyway. I just That's think, why I was asking you if you ever heard something on the answer, because I've had no answers on that. They just, no, they, they don't have an answer. It's, it's, it's false. I mean, they don't have a, a legitimate answer, you know? Uh, it's obvious if you read Bushman, I think it was Bushman that said, I mean, it's obvious Joseph Smith matured through his understanding of God. Book of Mormon was his entrance to it. Pro Doctrine and Covenants was a little more advanced. Pearl of Great Price more. And then he's saying, hey, we're God, you know, by the time he got to Nauvoo. So uh, God bless you in your work, my friend. Okay, later. Thanks. Bye-bye. We're going to Todd in South Jordan, Utah, line two. Todd, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, hi. Hi, Todd. Uh, first time watcher, first time caller. Yeah. Um, question, I, I guess I understand that you used to be a Mormon. Yeah, 40 years. 40 years? 40, yeah. Much older than that. So, um, <laughs> anyway, um, I, I'm Catholic. Okay. And I really don't understand that much about the Mormon church. Okay. Um, it's kind of a bizarre um, cultish faith. Yeah. Um, but I, I would think like if you really like researched the Bible and you really done your homework, which it sounds like you kind of have, that try. it all points back to, um, Catholicism. So the only apostolic church is, have you ever researched into Catholicism? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've looked at a few religions and, um, I've read the Bible, and, and I can't imagine why. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, Todd. 
you, I, just, uh, I just don't know why, if anyone's Christian, why they would be anything other than Catholic. Well, they probably read the Catholic history. I mean, come on, Todd, if you're going to bring that to the, the live airwaves and say that to me, they probably looked at the history of the Catholic Church and, and the history of uh, what happened. And, uh, you know, you can look at the Anabaptists in the Trail of Blood. It's a book. Uh, and it talks about how there were Christians that skirted the uh, Roman Catholic Church and their escapades in the early history of the church. You know, I'm not picking on Catholics because all of church history stinks. But if you call and you say, hey, you should be Catholic over anything else, I think we could sit down and maybe prove you wrong. You know, what you need to do is have the relationship with Christ. The institution, it doesn't matter what it is, is not going to save you. So if Catholicism leads you to being born again, Todd, and to have a personal relationship with Christ and realize that you don't have to look to an infallible pope and his edicts on this earth and that you can go directly to Christ by faith, then you're okay. You want to be a Catholic? Fine. You want to do the Eucharist? You want to pray to Virgin Mary? You want to do all those things with the saints and, and, and read a Bible that has all of the, uh, the uh, extra books in it? Uh, go ahead. But I'm just telling you, an institution is not the answer, no matter what institution it is. Okay? I mean, I, I somewhat agree with you, but I, I do think that um, religions do need some type of hierarchy, and they just can't have... Oh, really? People just talking. Where, where do you get that? Where do you understand that from? Well, I, I see, maybe not, I, I don't really know the religion... Um, How about the Bible? What do you think the Bible teaches? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is walking along, and there's a guy casting out devils, and the apostles get all up and antsy and say, hey, should we go uh, destroy this guy? And Jesus said, hey, leave him alone. If he's not against us, he's for us. There was no organized religion in that one. Did he belong to the Catholic Church? No. He didn't even follow the apostles. Jesus said, leave him alone. It's well, I, a, I think there, there just needs to be more accountability Oh, really? To who? I mean, you can't have, like, um, these rogue Baptist churches running around and um, protesting funerals of, of um, dead soldiers. Well, you have rogue, you have rogue Catholic priests who uh, are homosexuals and say homosexuality should be embraced by the church. If you look at the rogues, you're going you're gonna to find an issue anywhere you turn. How about... The, wait a minute, wait a minute, Todd. The Bible teaches that the true church of Christ, listen, Todd, check this out, is made of believers, not a brick and mortar institution, not a hierarchy, believers. And they could be Catholic, they could be Mormon, they could be Baptist, they could be all over, and they are who form the true church. You can read that actually in the Bible. But Catholics usually don't read the Bible, do they? Not really. <laughs> All right, man. Check it out. Uh, thanks for calling. Keep watching. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. Ken from Orem, Utah. Ken, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, this is Ken. How you doing? I'm doing well. First time caller. Um, I just recently left the Mormon faith, and it's kind of crushing because you lose everything you believe in. Yeah. And it's hard to believe in anything when you've been steeped in so much deep doctrine. Your yeah. whole life. Yeah. Um, earlier in your show, you spoke about the Bible um, having archaeological evidence. You are exactly correct, and I and I agree with you that and that the Book of Mormon evidence 
is very scant, and I'd agree with you there. However, here's my question for you. Yeah. With the Bible having such great archaeological evidence, it doesn't, you know, tell you, I mean, how can one vet out that Christ was divine? Yes, I do believe in a man by the name of Jesus that walked the earth. Yeah. But, but how can you say with a sh- with a surety that this was someone that was the Son of God? It's a great question, and it's a viable question, and it's a great springboard to start from uh, in your in your position. I don't discount it. I have been there myself. But here's the thing: give yourself a, an opportunity, Ken. Don't believe me or your bishop or a pastor or televangelist. Go and talk to this God who may or may not be divine. Tell him your uh, thoughts. Say, I don't even know if I believe you're true. Say your true heart to him. But be honest and open and willing to receive what he will give you. This God will answer the humble heart. He does approve of the seeker. Even if you are a doubting seeker, Go to him with whatever you have and lay it before him, Ken. And this is why I say, I use that word know, and in the Greek, that gnosko, that knowing. In that Bible I believe in, one of the apostles who was walking with Jesus for years, John, he writes that we can know we have eternal life. We can know the truth. The truth shall make us free. So you have that right. Religions don't always tell you you have the right. You have that right. I'm laying it back on you. You go before a maker, whether he's fictitious in your mind or real, and you challenge and say, please, open my eyes, open my ears. Now, Jesus said, those who don't hear, and this is what he said, Ken, not me, is they love the darkness more than the light. That's what he said. If you love the light more than the darkness, I promise you, you go to your creator and you tell him, give me light and your eyes will open. Then try opening that book, start at the Gospel of John, and just start reading it with eyes that were not uh, twisted by the LDS, a Bible that is not LDS printed. Try doing that, Ken, and we'll see how it works. Okay, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome, my friend. God bless. Have a good night. You too. Hey, listen, if you want affordable automotive, go to Rick at uh, 801-262-5610. Affordable automotive on, in Murray, Utah. They are men of integrity, and they work on your car uh, with integrity, and I appreciate them. It's not a paid advertisement. It's because I appreciate uh, the kind of work they do. Next week, we're going to continue on with analyzing the Book of Mormon, and we're going to start getting into it. And uh, I, I think it's going to be a wonderful experience for people to see the truth because the truth will set them free, and that truth is Jesus Christ. See you next week. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. I'm going to break my rusty cage and run. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage. And run.